0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiadam Sulongkomer, the host of this channel. And today, I'm here with Dr. Sushmita Nath to talk about her book, The Secular Imaginary, Gandhi, Nehru, and the Ideas of Nation. Now, I think... As someone who dabbles into religion and who dabbles into idea of secularism and who is very interested in all of this aspect of life and reality, I think. And also as me, as someone who coming from India, I think I was very interested in the title of the book itself and I think... And as I have traversed the writings and the ideas in the book, I was very fascinated by the work of the author. And uh, interestingly, today I'm here sitting uh, with the author herself, and then we'll be talking about uh, this book itself. So I believe that the listeners will be enriched by the discussions that are there here in the book, and clair- will be clarified about many more concepts uh, that are that are there emerging from the from India and also from the emerging from the historical context of the writings of Gandhi and Nehru, and also. So, see some implications for the Indian context today. Yeah, so let me straight away go to the author herself and let me start a conversation. So uh, Dr. Sushmita Nat, can you tell us something about yourself?
2: Sure, thanks. Thanks, Jitmisu, first of all, for inviting me to the podcast. Uh, I am a bit nervous because I've never done this before. So, um, yeah. So about myself, I'm a political theorist. and I'm interested in themes uh, related to secularism and secularity, nationalism, populism, and democracy. Uh, My work uh, generally uh, focuses on intellectual and political histories of India. Uh, And I have a particular interest interest in, uh, in, and I mean, I try to look at these issues through the lens of what today we call global intellectual history, and as well as uh, comparative social and political theory. So um, this comparative social and political theory, as it is conceived these days, is relatively new uh, uh, field. Uh, It's different from comparative politics. Um, So comparative social and political theory makes this bold claim that theory does not just comes from the West, theory also comes from the global South. Uh, so this is the prerogative with which uh, comparative theory, uh, social and political theory works. So my work largely uh, looks at uh, issues that I mentioned, secularism, populism, etc., through the lens of comparative political theory and uh, intellectual history, global intellectual history.
1: Well, that's um, really interesting. And can you tell us something about what uh, you are currently doing as of in terms of uh, your affiliation with institutions?
2: right um so uh, when i was uh, writing this book uh, which was based on my doctoral and postdoctoral work i was um a postdoctoral fellow at uh, this institute called the multiple secularities this is based in leipzig university and uh, this is a conglomerate of international scholars all working um, on the conception of secularity, uh, religion and secularity. And uh, uh, yeah, looking at secularity, both like in pre-modern and modern times, and you have like a group of historians, sociologists, political scientists. So uh, this is where uh, for the longest part I was uh, based in, and I wrote my book there, both during my doctoral and postdoctoral research. Uh, And after the book, I joined, uh, this uh, research inst- uh, research group called uh, Contestations of the Liberal Script. Uh, this is a research group based in Berlin uh, at the Freie Universität, uh, and there uh, I was uh, looking at the conception of populism as it is understood in India uh, and practiced in India as well, in relation to the global rise and upsurge of populism in the world. So. Uh, this is what uh, I have been doing.
1: Yeah, quite interesting. Now, I think uh, in any scholarly journey and any you know uh, digging up any concepts and all, there's obvi- obviously a kind of story behind uh, working on any topic or any subject. So, uh, what is what was the motivation behind working on this book and specifically working on this area for your PhD? Yeah. Uh
2: yeah, right. Um, It's a mix of serendipity and my research interest, actually. Um, So uh, in terms of my research interest in my MPhil, uh, I was looking at this assumed incommensurability between uh, issues of gender equality and uh, religion freedom of religion. So, you know, political theory always starts with this assumed incompatibility between religious freedom on the one hand and questions of gender equality. And um, I was looking at the Muslim personal law uh, with regard to that. And uh, yeah, when I was looking at that question, um, um, secularism uh, inadvertently became something that I had to engage with uh, so the topic of secularism came in, and so this is how I got into secularism in India. The debates on secularism in India. Uh, then eventually, in during my doctorate, re- uh, doctoral research, uh, I was kind of dabbling with this, with these debates on secularism. And what struck me uh, when I was looking at these debates on secularism, it seemed to me at least that this there was this huge debate about secularism in India in the 90s, you know, with the uh, publication of Rajiv Bhargav's edited book, Secularism and Its Critics. Uh, And it seemed to me that that debate happened in the 90s and kind of was done with, uh, in the 90s itself. So resolved. So there was a contradiction whether secularism is a Western concept or not and how much of it is an Indian concept. And this there was a vibrant debate and it, to, to me, it seemed that the debate was kind of the like uh, ended there. And uh, I still was kind of interested in these debates and I thought that this debate kind of needs to be reopened from today's political hindsight, you know. Uh, I think a lot has changed since the 90s. So this was one motivation. And the other was um, when I was uh, like a PhD student uh, in Jawaharlal Nehru University. uh, uh, The scholar, Monica Volrabsar, she is one of the directors of multiple secularities in Leipzig University. She was in JNU as well uh, as a visiting fellow, and she presented a paper on multiple secularities. And that kind of caught my attention because I had not heard that term before uh, uh, Before she had presented the paper. And I was already reading a lit- literature on multiple modernities, which uh, has been um, engaged with by scholars like Charles Taylor and in India and by scholars like Sudipta Kaviraj. So I was really interested in uh, what is this a conception of multiple secularities that this scholar is talking about and then I kind of started engaging with her works and this is how I got into the topic of secularism and secularity and this is how the book came about.
1: Yeah quite an interesting journey indeed yeah so as we move into the contents of the book let's um take a step ahead and clarify, I think, four concepts that has to do with secular. And the first one is actually uh, the word secular in that sense. I mean, uh, today when anyone says that I'm a secular person and all, it talks about a mode of being, right, mode of being in the social reality itself. So uh, what really is this uh, secularism and where did it come from and how did it play about in the Indian context?
2: Right. Um, so one of the things that I try doing in the book right away, there's a chapter on just clarifying the terms, secular, secularism, secularity and secularization. Um, uh, and in the book, I have differentiated all these words and the attempt has been to understand uh, concepts of secularism, secularity and secularization. Uh through this fixed understanding of uh, the secular. So uh, the secular, as we all know, has its origin in in the Western world or what Charles Taylor calls the Latin Christendom, right? and so it has a peculiar and a particular history in terms of the, the word emerged in, 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 West, in the Western history, right, uh, according to Charles Taylor. So it has what Charles Taylor calls a certain embeddedness to it. There's a certain cultural, historical embeddedness where secular word emerged within the Latin Christendom. And he tells us that when the word first came about, it was was a non-oppositional word to religion. It emerged within Christianity and secular was simply uh, the profane time as opposed to the higher time or the uh, spiritual time, right? Uh, So, it was simply a non-oppositional diet, as, he, uh, as Taylor puts it. And then he says, over time, it becomes an oppositional diet, which means that secular came to be seen as in opposition to religion. Now, Charles Taylor's claim is that this is how secular came to be uh, imagined, articulated in the West. This need not be so in, uh, when, when this idea spread. So despite its embeddedness, you know, which we can trace back to Latin Christendom, despite its embeddedness, it need not. So this is the first thing he says, it need not be understood in the same oppositional manner, like where religion is opposed to uh, secular in other parts of the world. This was his first claim. And another claim that he made was even within uh, Christianity, secular and religion was understood in various ways and it was a highly contested and debated topic so there was just not one single story that we are used to which is that if you are secular you are anti religion so this is uh, this is um what I begin with in terms of defining secular. And then I go on to define secularism, uh, which is an ideology of the state, which means that the state needs to be impartial towards religious communities. Then I define secularity, which is uh, a project which was taken up by multiple secularities project, which looks at how do we demarcate bound of lay, like understand religion and sex so what is religion what is secular so this boundary making mechanism so that is secularity and secularization as we know is a social process which uh, began with modernization so yeah very briefly this is how i understand the secular and its cognates
1: yeah thank you very much for precisely Putting these um, four concepts in, uh, in a very, you know, um, uh, crisp manner to understand the process of the aspect of secular, the process of secularization, secularity, uh, secularity, and secularism. So I think uh, making that concept clear. Let let us move ahead to Gandhi and Nehru here. I think uh, this book uh, deals a lot on uh, these two personalities from India. So, um, firstly, let's go to Gandhi. So. What was Gandhi's conception of political in that sense? How did Gandhi understood political? Yeah,
2: Right. Uh, Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. This was actually one of the most challenging aspects when I began working on the question of uh, uh, the relationship between religion, uh, state and politics in Gandhi's thought, that how do I understand the political in Gandhi? Because... uh, um, the gandhi had a very uh, unique understanding of political in my view which was not a certain dominant uh, liberal understanding of political uh, which we inherited uh, and learned from the british uh, so if you look at uh, the book the chapter on gandhi actually begins with the question what is the political what is the political in gandhi and i say there i say that Unlike in most uh, democratic theories, which is mostly a Western conception of democratic theories, you know, we assume that the political is always already there. You know, the political is there. You have the political subject and the, the aim of uh, demo, uh, democratic theory is to bring uh, uh, these people together for a common political project, right? Uh, but Gandhi uh, began with this assumption, what if there is no political right uh to begin with so his first step was the creation of a political subject so uh, what uh lee Jenko talking about she talks about chinese politics she talks about making the political so gandhi's attempt was to make the political through through his conception of satyagraha and ahimsa. You know, ahimsa, which is non-violence, and satyagraha is the political form of um, ahimsa. So in making the political, Gandhi kind of moved away from the dominant forms of the political, which was already there in the Indian subcontinent at the time, which was, on the one hand, the liberal constitutional politics of the Indian National Congress, and on the other hand, we saw the revolutionary politics, um, the, the violent and the revolutionary form of politics that uh, uh, was uh, practiced by our revolutionary leaders. So Gandhi kind of said that, you know, there is excessive use of force in revolutionary politics, which is, you know, the idea of uh, is violence is central to it, to do away with injustice, right? On the other hand, liberal constitutionalism has very little or no conception of force because it's all based on petition. Uh, And Gandhi wanted a new, imagined a new form of political where, you know, it's not lack of force, but also not excessive use of force. Uh, And this is how uh, the political in Gandhi may be conceived, which is not a liberal, I, I imagine it is not a liberal understanding of the political.
1: So, I mean, moving on to the next one, um, since we are talking about secularism, so we need to understand what was Gandhi's conception of religion in that sense. So uh, how did uh, Gandhi understand religion? I mean, you look at the aspect of uh, religion as faith and religion as discovery. So can you elaborate that a little bit more? Yeah. Right. Oh,
2: I'm so happy that you read the book so carefully. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, actually... Uh, When I was reading on Gandhi's conception of religion, there there is a lot of work on Gandhi's religion. And I was kind of drowning in that work uh, without really getting a clear vision uh, of what Gandhi's religion is. There's really, when it comes to Gandhi's political thought and Gandhi's conception of religion, there's just just too much. Um, So uh, what I did then was um, I started looking at other thinkers uh, who uh, talk about religion. And then I came across Muhammad Iqbal's essay on uh, uh, religious reconstruction. Or, uh, uh, I think it was called Islam and the Religious Reconstruction of Life or something like that. And there, uh, Muhammad Iqbal talks about religion in terms of thought, religion as... Uh, so. He talks about religion in terms of a process that it goes from uh, religion as faith, and then there is thought, and then there is discovery. And this, um, I found this idea of religion as faith, thought, and discovery very interesting. And... Then I went back to Gandhi's thought and uh, Gandhi's understanding of religion. And I realized that Gandhi is doing something similar in terms of what Iqbal was doing. Um, So instead of this tripartite division, uh, Gandhi is talking about religion in two languages. He does not differentiate like Iqbal. He is not differentiating, but Gandhi is talking about religion in two ways as faith And faith is something that is unquestionable. It is beyond reason. You unquestioningly accept it. So he talks about religion as faith, and then he talks about religion as discovery, uh, which he links to an ethical life. So in religion as discovery, you have to practice an ethical life. And this is where uh, Gandhi in his ashram started to live the religion that he propagated. So these are the two aspects of religion as ethical living, which requires experimentation with religion, which requires experience of ethical living. And there is the other part of religion, which is almost like an unthought religion as faith, which is beyond critical reflection. There is no critical, you just accept it as it is. And I think in Gandhi's thought, these both these things are present. Uh, and uh, and uh, this is the tricky bit in Gandhi's religion. So there is this aspect which, where it is absolutely, um, uh, you know, it's faith which, with which you cannot have like um, there is no rational uh, understanding behind it. You just accept it. And there is this other aspect where uh, you have constantly negotiate, understand religion by experiencing it, by practicing it, much like what he uh, saw science was doing. So in terms of religion as ethical living he equates it with the practice of science and yeah so this is how gandhi talked thought and talked about religion in my view at least
1: yeah, I mean that's a good way of putting um, uh, precisely the Kant's thought on religion. So as uh, we are, you have, uh, you know, elaborated about Kant's conception of political and Kant's conception of religion. So how does these uh, two come together? So can you please elaborate a little bit more about Kant's uh, conception or the understanding of religion in politics in that sense? Yeah.
2: Right. So, you know, when Gandhi is talking about religion as ethical living, what does that mean? Religion as ethical living means that he has a certain holistic conception of religion, uh, which means that uh, his conception of ethical life uh, uh, extends to other aspects in social life, to the political, to the economic, uh, to education, so unlike modern secularization theories which say that in modern societies we have clear differentiation and distinction of functions between religion uh, between religion education politics science gandhi is saying no to that and gandhi's in gandhi's ashram everything is looked through the lens of religion Right. Um, and this is where his religion and politics comes together, um, where uh, uh, you cannot divorce religion from politics because uh, like ev- any other aspect, uh, like the economy, like uh, science, like uh, medicine, for Gandhi, even politics uh, or the political should also be understood through the aspect of religion as ethical life. So this is where Gandhi's religion and politics came together. Uh, And I try to understand that by looking at Gandhi's ashram, because much of what he did at a larger scale on the Indian subcontinent was first tried and tested within the ashram. So the ashram was like a test site, you know, he experimented there. If it worked, uh, then he kind of... uh, put it to practice on the larger uh, Indian subcontinent. Uh, Yeah, so this is how his religion and politics came together.
1: Yeah, so zooming out to the greater national level, you talk about Gandhi's way of common action and political unity and you give uh, three aspects of it. That is, uh, you talk about the associational politics, associational activities, and associational living. And I think um, this, this is quite uh, interesting in that sense when Gandhi look at the broader perspective from a national perspective. So can you elaborate a little bit more on these aspects? Here? Right. So
2: this idea of Gandhi's associationalism came from... Uh, from Uh, this realization that uh, Gandhi's politics does not adhere to any of uh, uh, the demands or expectations of liberal politics. Um, uh, So then I had to look beyond... uh, uh, the categories of liberal political thought and liberal politics. And then I uh, kind of came up with this idea uh, uh, of associationalism, and uh, I owe much to Rudolph and Rudolph, who also talk about Gandhi's associational politics. Uh, But I kind of um, expand on that, and I say it's not just associational politics, which uh, which means that uh, in politics you have to be... uh, political friendship becomes more important first that is the first step towards and then then you can have political pacts and negotiations which is the liberal kind of understanding of uh, political so for gandhi political friendship was the first step uh, so this is what is essentially uh, associational act, uh, associational politics that i talk about um, and then uh, associational uh, activity was uh, for gandhi uh, was the first step Towards uh, having a better society, or uh, 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 which is that through social work, and as we know, Gandhi's constructive uh, program was central to this. So it is a bottom-up approach where you uh, don't try to radically change the socio political but you you have incremental changes through reform. So reform is central to uh, envisioning a certain form of social change. And this is where associational activity becomes important, which is essentially uh, forms of social activity, social work, which begins from uh, bottom up. Um, So you can contrast this... um, associational activity and associational politics that I elaborate in my book to the kind of politics that, uh, for instance, someone like Nehru does, where the social uh, does not have the primacy as much as the political has uh, the primacy. So uh, um, uh, our political leaders like Ambedkar and Nehru sought to to uh, do away with the injustices in in society like the caste system through a radical transformation. They wanted to radically transform society with the help of the state. So the state became central to change. Gandhi kind of can be seen as someone who is right in the uh, opposite spectrum to this, where he thought you cannot have a radical transformation of society. Uh, He actually went for something like forms of reform. So you can slowly transform society through smaller steps of reform. Of course, there is a problem with such an understanding of reform that, you know, when you have such systemic injustice, like the caste system and untouchability, how can someone who is undergoing, uh, who has uh, uh, felt the injustice of caste system except the slow reform so of course there is this question of how effective is Gandhi's social reform um, so yeah so um, uh, these are the three aspects associational activity associational uh, politics and the last is associational living which uh, again uh, is not unique to Gandhi as I say and there were other other thinkers who thought about in the same line, uh, which is that you don't have to look at the long history of Indian subcontinent to say that, look, we were all to get living together happily, even in the past. You know, there is this composite culture, syncretic culture, and which has les- resulted in tolerance. Gandhi did not, none of that sort. Um, he was not interested in um, in the Indian history as much, although he did talk about it here and there, uh, that Hindus and Muslims are brothers. um, But what he was more interested in, uh, in terms of associational living, uh, was that when people come together and live together for a long period of time, you share not just sorrows, but also happiness. This common sharing of sorrows and happiness, this common sharing of of a social world creates a certain kind of solidarity. Uh, And this solidarity is what Uh, on the basis of which a nation should be built on. And this is exceptional in terms of imagining a nation in these terms because in the 19th century, nation was imagined in terms of common religion, language, ethnicity, and whatnot, right? And Gandhi is kind of saying no to all that and saying that what brings us together is our common happiness and sorrows. Uh, What brings us together is this uh, experiencing and living together for this long a time so it does not matter how the past was it's how uh, it's how we uh, are at present living together, you know, and how we are experiences of living together. So this, this becomes an important aspect of uh, Gandhi's political thought uh, in terms of associational living. Uh, and I try to bring all these different aspects of associational living, associational politics, and uh, associational activity to talk about a larger understanding of associationalism in, in Gandhi's political thought.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yes. Now you have uh, touched a little bit on the aspect of how countries uh, think about religious tolerance in that sense. And I think uh, in the Indian context, uh, the very aspect of uh, religious uh, tolerance is an uh, important topic. So, can you elaborate something more on Gandhi's idea of religious tolerance and also its relation to the state? How he understood uh, this function of the state to be in terms of you know, look, uh, understanding religion and its uh, the aspect of tolerance.
2: Right. Um, so actually, uh, when it comes to the conception of to- uh, tolerance in Gandhi's uh, thought, we see that the state is not. Uh, very important uh, or very relevant to uh, the conception of uh, tolerance that Gandhi has. Uh, And again, uh, uh, with tolerance, uh, there is this assumption in Gandhi's thought that no religion is perfect. And because no religion is perfect, um, there is uh, the possibility of reform within every religion. And it is through this lens that he approaches the question of uh, uh, tolerance uh, in his uh, political thought and in his uh, politics. Uh, so, uh, uh, I mean, uh, in mainstream uh, national, uh, in mainstream nationalism, how tolerance is perceived is sarv harm, sambhav, and. Uh, Uh, which is equality of all religions. And uh, Gandhi also talks about equality of all religions, but there is a conceptual distance between how Gandhi perceived tolerance and how it came to be... uh, um it came to be uh reflected in uh the uh indian or the uh nationalist uh, uh mainstream conception of uh tolerance in indian secularism for instance so uh, when gandhi talks about equality of all religions um uh through conceptions like sarv dharm sambhav um he is uh, thinking about uh tolerance in terms of, not in terms of composite culture or not in terms of miscibility of cultures, which is how generally we talk about uh, uh, tolerance, you know, this Nehruvian heritage that uh, there is this great history, past history in India of all religions mingling together, we borrow from each other. Uh, In India, we have an example of syncretic and composite cultures and this is an example of tolerance. Uh, In Gandhian political thought, uh, this is not so. He is actually talking about tolerance in terms of what... (laughs) I say uh, in the book as unassimilable unassimilable differences. So differences that cannot be uh, mixed together, you know. So you have your differences in terms of being a Hindu, in terms of being Christian or Muslim. Uh, So these differences cannot be mixed or are not not miscible. And yet you develop uh, an idea of tolerance. So uh, th- this idea of miscibility is uh, completely missing from Gandhian understanding of tolerance. Um, so if, so how do you uh, practice tolerance for Gandhi? This, this was the challenge. How do you practice tolerance despite you being an orthodox Hindu, which he considered himself to be, despite one being an orthodox uh, Muslim and despite one being an orthodox Christian and so on? So despite... Or in spite of that, how do you practice tolerance? And for Gandhi, then mm, uh, associational, associationalism comes in to understand and practice tolerance that ways.
1: Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that. So now moving on to Nehru, uh, the uh, another personality that you talk about in this book. And now there's a shift in discourse uh, happening when uh, Nehru is coming into the context uh, or when Nehru comes into the context of, um, uh, of the Indian political discourse. So to go straight into the question, uh, what was Nehru's idea of modernity? Right. So in, in, in the book, uh, there's a
2: section where I titled it uh, for for Nehru's conception of modernity, I say modernity in Swaraj and Swaraj in modernity. What I mean by that, for Nehru, it was absolutely essential that um, we do away with colonial rule to really realize uh, modernity. Because for Nehru, what impeded uh, progress and development in India was the colonial rule. So for Nehru, uh, modernity was in inextricably linked to uh, col- colonial rule. And therefore, the first step towards realizing modernity for Nehru was uh, doing away with colonial rule. And then the second step then was that you have the state-led form of development that we are all aware of, uh, of industrialization, um, of science and development. uh, And uh, so uh, like a scientific uh, uh, science takes a predominance in uh, Nehruvian conception of modernity. And uh, through state-led development, through science, uh, Nehru understood uh, the development and progress of uh,
1: society. Yes, and when we look at Nehru, uh, you have argued that uh, Nehru distinguishes religion from uh, modernity and spirituality. Now, uh, so how does uh, this Nehru's notion of uh, religion in relation to political works out in his uh, thought and work?
2: Right, um, so unlike Gandhi, Nehru actually thought that it is possible not only to uh, separate religion from politics, uh, Nehru actually thought that you could separate religion and politics, but uh, not only that, but also it was desirable to do so. So uh, when I say that, it does not mean immediately that the Nehru was uh, anti-religious. No, not at all. Um Nehru was a kind of liberal uh, political thinker and politician, who uh, for whom um, politicized religion was not uh, not really an acceptable form of uh, politics or acceptable form of politics within a liberal polity. Um, so uh this is where this is how Nehru came to conceive the relationship between religion and political and uh, in in the book I also say that you know there's this generally like from this this understanding of the political and religion, there is this immediate uh, conclusion that Nehru was anti-religious. this is not so. if if we look at Nehru's uh, stance on uh, the uniform Civil code, uh, Uh, which I talk about uh, in the book regarding uh, uh, Hindu court bills, for instance, if we look at Nehru's stance on these issues, we realize that Nehru did have a deep respect for religion, uh, but he had a particular understanding of the relationship between religion and politics, and he did think that politicization of religion was not the best way forward to uh, for an, for in for the Indian polity and much of it was of course uh, based on his past experience where uh, uh, by the time Nehru came into politics, uh, it was a very divisive kind of sort of politics in the uh, uh, in the 1930s where you know uh, uh, communal communalism was at its all time high and uh, we have. Uh, politics especially in terms of uh, what we know as communal politics so uh, it is from this kind of understanding we have to realize that Nehru had his conception of how religion and politics should relate to each other
1: mm, yeah and in Nehru's thought the idea of secularity and secularism becomes uh, more articulated in that sense so how or how, how did Nehru think about, uh, or what was his conception of secularity and secularism in that sense? Yeah,
2: right. Um, so, uh, following the definitions of secularity and secularism in the book, I say that uh, in Nehru's political thought, actually, we see two understandings of secularity, and I label the first understanding of secularity as. nationalist uh, conception of secularity and the second as humanist universal Uh, and in the nationalist understanding of secularity uh, which is very uh, present in his book the discovery of india we see uh, that uh, this kind of secularity is attributed to india's past uh, in the ancient and medieval period uh, where there is this uh, kind of secular understanding of religion, uh, and uh, Nehru says that this uh, this uh, kind of approach to religion in a very secular manner uh, is what uh, is actually the essence of religion generally in India, and that is why, uh, despite uh, despite uh, all the perversions uh, that has happened to religion over several thousand years, we still see this this secular aspect still present uh, in the Indian subcontinent in the form of composite culture, in the form of syncretic cultures. Um, So this is where we see this kind of nationalist uh, uh, understanding of secularity uh, uh, in Nehru's thought. And then the humanist universal was more um, uh, following uh, kind of uh, um, the Western experience of uh, uh, secularity where Nehru says uh, that in in he kind of uses this Hegelian language of spirit of the age and he says that the spirit of the age in the 20th century is a certain humanism and uh, he attributes this humanism to the advent of secularity. So this secular humanism uh, is uh, is what he calls is the spirit of the age. So this is not particular to the West. Uh, it is it is uh, how today's world today's world society uh, um, should be uh, like a progressive understanding of society should be seen. And this is through this secular humanist understanding. He says this is not atru- not an attribute of the West, but but it's a universal aspect and uh, this humanism this universal secular humanism is what uh, nehru thought that should be uh, ep- should be applied or um, uh, accepted uh, in in terms of an indian uh, indian secularity so so in nehru we see these two conceptions of secularity side by side this nationalist version and the secular humanist version and they kind of come together to in his conception of secularity as uh, as an uh, indian secularity if uh, we can call it so that secularism on the other hand as as i said is uh, is a state ideology and there uh, what nehruvian secularism uh uh, and, uh what uh, how how we can understand Nehruv- Re- nehruvian secularism is that the, um is that democracy is equally important as secularism so democratic values are equally important as secularism and this is where um Kind of Indian secularism can be distinguished from, like, say, more heavy-handed secularism of, say, um, uh, some some countries in the world where it is. Although secularism is a top-down approach, uh, Nehru always understood it alongside. Uh, democratic ethos and values and they kind of went side by side and what I mean by that is that if secularism and democracy goes together it means that uh, for Nehru at least that at certain times you have to give in to the democratic demands and uh, it is this balancing between secularism and democratic ethos uh, that I think forms the basis of Nehruvian secularism which was not so important to um, for instance later governments uh, that came in and for instance the uh, for instance the the current uh, political predisposition where secularism is really um, kind of disconnected from its uh, democratic ethos so secular values and democratic ethos uh, go together in nehruvian secularism
1: yes that's a quite um, good articulations of uh, Nehruvian secularity and secularism. Now, in your book, uh, you talk about um, this distinguishing aspect of Nehruvian secularity versus the ideology of Nehruism, so, uh, which emerged in the 1970s and 80s, as you talk about. So uh, what is this uh, distinguishing aspect in terms of Nehruvian secularity and the ideology of uh, Nehruism?
2: Right. Um, so I attribute this Nehruism, uh, I uh, follow this term from Kaviraj, how he uses it. Uh, Nehruism is a certain form of ideology, which was really used by Nehru's daughter, Indira Gandhi, uh, uh, so to to propagate a certain form of populist politics. Uh, so a lot of things that uh, Indira Gandhi did was only in name, and, uh, and uh, they not just Nehruvian secularism, but a lot of other Nehruvian ideas uh, became more symbolic than actually having any substance, which was the case in Nehru's time. So um, secularism took, or secularity took this perverse form under Indira Gandhi, where it was kind of delinked from its uh, humanist uh, 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 articulations. So as I said, that Nehru had this universal humanist uh, understanding of secularity. So humanist, was central to his conception of secularity. This completely goes mi- missing uh, in Indira Gandhi's time, and her authoritarian populism kind of uses. Uh, 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 Nehruvian ideas, including uh, Nehruvian uh, secularism and Nehruvian secular se- uh, secularity, to propagate her politics. So it was really delinked from uh, certain uh, central Nehruvian values. So in that sense, Nehru Nehruism is very distinct from. Nehruvian secularity, and this is the this is the heritage that we have kind of inherited, where a religion came to be seen so opposed to the secular. Uh, this was not so uh, necessarily so uh, in in uh, Nehru's political thought, but increasingly so in Indira Gandhi's time, and this is what we have inherited from that uh, era. So it is now it. Whenever someone talks about secularism uh, in India, we enter suddenly enter in this charged environment that where um, either you are secular or you are anti-religion. There is no other way. So we we can if we trace back, a lot of it can be traced back to uh, Indra Gandhi's uh, populist politics
1: yeah I think uh, that's a very uh, good um, understanding of Nehru and how we have inherited a certain aspect uh, of his uh, thoughts through uh, his daughter and I think that's a very uh, interesting way of looking and uh, looking at the aspect of uh, Nehru Nehru's politics in that sense and his understanding of secularity. So moving on to uh, again, to looking at nehru and uh, since nehru was in the pedestal of uh, you know making decision in the uh, in india after the uh, so when india got independence so when we look at nehru so uh, uh, Let's put it this way, right? Uh, what was his engagement in, in Indian politics in terms of the partition of India and also also at the same time in terms of the post-colonial as such? What was Nehru's uh, you know, engagement and contribution to the political sphere in that sense?
2: Right. Um, so uh, in one aspect where actually Nehru and Gandhi met there were a lot of differences in terms of how they imagined the political, how they imagined uh, uh, the idea of India, as I say, put it in the book. Um, um, there was much difference between Gandhi and Nehru, but one on one, one of the aspects where they met was uh, the imagination of India, not in terms of common religion, ethnicity, language, and so on. Um, so Nehru did not think that a nation is based on... Um, common religion, ethnicity, language. Uh, And this is what uh, animated his politics as well. Uh, uh, You uh, take up uh, any issue in Indian politics, be it the language question, uh, um, uh, 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 or be it uh, the question of uh, the relationship between religion and politics, and and of course how the nation is imagined. We see that Nehru is saying that religion is unimportant to an imagination and construction of the nation. So like Gandhi, when the partition happened, uh, Nehru also is um, kind of says in his work that this is historically unprecedented. This should, this could not have happened. So Gandhi talks about the partition in terms of a vivisection of the nations. And Nehru also talks about the partition in a similar manner, that this this uh, was not what historically was supposed to happen because the nation is not uh, supposed to be on the basis of a uh, uh, common religion uh, so this is how he understood partition this was uh, and this is uh, then understand so but having said that partition did have an uh, have a, a very deep impact on nehru uh, Thinking, you have to realize that for a politician uh, and a thinker who thought that you know a nation cannot be based on common religion, language, etc., um, suddenly uh, it did happen uh, that there was another nation that was based on a common religion of Islam. So this deeply, deeply affected Nehru, and so I say that there is a shift in Nehru's. Uh, nehru's uh, political thought at least uh, um, which is that uh, that nehru uh, conceives liberal politics and, liber- and uh, in terms of what is known as uh, in uh, political thought what is known as uh, liberalism of fear and what liberalism of fear says is that you do not just assume that constitutional rights are equally given to everyone as a citizen you do not assume that uh, you realize you begin from the fact that it is uh, a reality that political rights are not equally given to everyone uh, and not not everyone experiences uh, rights in the same manner when you realize that how do you uh, how do you shape a society how do you shape uh, the uh, The politics of a society when you have that realization. And uh, in my book, I argue that Nehru began, uh, so he changed his political stance. And then he looked at the question of reservation, for instance, uh, the question of minority rights, for instance, through this lens of liberalism of fear. Uh, So yeah, this is what I uh, argue in my book
1: yes I think uh, very pertinent uh, articulations of Nehru's uh, engagement in the political arena and how you know he changed his thought in terms of articulating his whole process of trying to understand the political and the uh, religion in the um, in India is yeah so now this will be my last question and I think um, I mean with all the discussions as we have had uh, I mean, there has been hints of this uh, question that I'm going to ask, but I think to be uh, very much precise and clear with uh, you know what your thoughts are on this, let me uh, you know put forward this question. And the question is this: that you know when we look at the Indian context today, uh, with the uh, political and the social cultural environment, and also for the future days to come, what? Uh, are the things that we should uh, take from Gandhi and Nehru in terms of understanding the religion and politics in terms of the everyday engagement that we will be having and will have uh, in the days to come because uh, today the environment has uh, become a little bit different and uh, uh, obviously we are hoping that the environment will change for the better in the days to come. So what will be the takeaway in that sense? Yeah. Right,
2: I think that's a great question to close this talk and actually I came to write this book in terms of this idea of the Gandhi Nehru tradition, which we haven't talked about so far. And I will uh, try to answer your question through this Gandhi Nehru tradition. So... What is this Gandhi Nehru tradition? We hear it very often um, in political debates. And yet uh, it's intriguing in the sense that Gandhi and Nehru had such opposing ideas of India. And uh, when you enter a charged environment, normatively charged environment on debates on secularism, Gandhi and Nehru are uh, posed in the opposite camps. Uh, and yet uh, we talk about this Gandhi Nehru tradition. So uh, very quickly, this Gandhi Nehru tradition is uh, emerged during the uh, 20th century. And although Gandhi and Nehru have their names on it, there were other political leaders who contributed to this imagination of uh, India in terms of the Gandhi Nehru tradition. Uh, and these other political leaders were um, Thinkers like Rabindranath Tagore, you even had Rajendra Prasad, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, uh, uh, Maulana Azad. Uh, so the, all these people were talking in one voice regarding the regarding the imagination of India, and uh, it is this uh, which now today has become marginal. So what what is this Gandhi Nehru tradition which has become marginal? Uh, is this idea? Of the secular, which connoted both societal tolerance and an impartial state. Uh, so this Gandhi Nehru tradition talked about this idea of tolerance and state impartiality through ideas of um, unity and diversity and Sarv Dharma Sambhav. So these both these ideals of unity and diversity and Sarvdharm Sambhav were essential to, to the Gandhi Nehru tradition. Um, um, so so when i say unity in diversity it means it is a conception where uh, a nation is not based on common religion language etc right uh, what rajendra prasad uh, says uh, that let india remain an unnational state that it is this is the idea of unnational state emerged at a time when you ha- you had this dominant understanding of the post-Westphalian state, which was the dominant way of imagining the nation. But are these leaders that I just mentioned imagined Indian nation in terms of uh, a multinational uh, state, or Rajendra Prasad calls the unnational state? So this is one aspect of uh, the Gandhi Nehru tradition, and the other aspect of the Gandhi Nehru tradition is. Uh, state impartiality and uh, tolerance that are brought together in terms of understanding secularism. Now, what has happened today in India today, that this understanding of this Gandhi tradition has taken, has become marginal. It is uh, only there symbolically. uh, And if at all, someone talks about it in a positive manner, uh, if at all, that is, um, then it is uh, in a very distorted way. Uh, and uh, so I think it is time we bring back, uh, revisit uh, this Gandhi Native tradition, how it has become marginalized, why it has become marginalized. And uh, yeah, and uh, just to end, uh, uh, today in the morning, I was reading the newspaper and there was this big advertisement uh, about some festival in Northeastern in India. And uh, instead of, you know, um, uh, looking at something like. There was this phrase called unity and identity. And I was really struck by it Uh, today morning. I was like, when when did we move from unity and diversity to unity and identity? So I think this is this shift that has happened in Indian polity and Indian society, both. Both at the level of polity and at the level of society that we have to really seriously consider to... uh, uh, Take the challenge of majoritarianism. To take the challenge of uh, uh, extremist right-wing Hindu nationalism, uh, uh, right on. Uh, so, if we want to do that, uh, I think uh, we have we need to uh, revisit the values of the Gandhian tradition.
1: Thank you, thank you very much for that. And so, is there anything that I've missed out that you want to articulate for, from your book?
2: Um, no, not really. I just wanted to say a uh, like few quick words about the title of the book, uh, uh, why I called it uh, The Secular Imaginary. Uh, so uh, it is called The Secular Imaginary, and I borrowed the word uh, imaginary from you know Charles Taylor's uh, work uh, where he talks about the modern social imaginaries. And there he says that uh, a social imaginary... Uh, is different uh, an imaginary is different from a theory in the sense that imaginaries are how ordinary people imagine their world right uh, as opposed to say intellectuals uh, and uh, imaginaries therefore are represented represented not in theoretical terms but they are carried out in images in uh, in stories and in legends um, And so uh, imaginaries have a widely shared of legitimacy uh, through such common practices. And I feel that this Gandhi Nehru tradition uh, lived in the 20th century and kind of continues to live, although kind of in a recessed manner, uh, um, uh, through an imaginary, uh, uh, more than its political form. And that is why I kind of decided to title the book as the secular imaginary, Uh, yeah, and yeah, that was the only thing I would have liked to add.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. That's a very, you know, good way of uh, titling a book uh, in terms of uh, the... Intellectual history attached to it in terms of how uh, you have kind of conceptualized your uh, thesis. Uh, that's a very good title in that sense. So thank you very much, Dr. Sue Smith and Nath, uh, for being here at New Books Network. Now my last question again will be this one: that Is there any uh, other project that you are working on? And also, if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your book, then uh, you know, an email or uh, which will be the better way to reach out to you
2: right um yeah so my current project is on uh, populism because uh, this is a theme that Im- kind of emerged when i was looking at uh, secularism and secularity and i realized that indira gandhi's populism had had much to do with uh, how indian politics today is structured and shaped and cause Narendra Modi, uh, the current prime minister of India is also his politics is also associated with a certain form of populism. So, um, yeah, and given the like this global explosion of populism worldwide, I thought, um, I mean, this was a topic that was just there to be engaged with. So this is my uh, current project uh, on populism. Uh, regarding the book, yes, uh, I'm more than happy to, for anyone to uh, get in touch with me if they want to have a chat about the book uh, or uh, any future engagement. I'm more than happy to do that. Uh, I'm not very active on social media, but I can be reached uh, via email and as well as via academia. I uh, try to upload all my work there and I'm quite regular uh, on that platform. So via academia or Gmail.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Sushmita Nath, for being here at New Books Network. I hope that uh, listeners will be enriched through this conversation also, you know, envision better way of trying to understand religion and politics in India itself and uh, I hope that uh, listeners will have a lot of takeaways from th- from this conversation so thank you Dr. Susmida not for being here in New box Network and take care thank you thanks
2: for inviting me.